Well, good afternoon, everybody. Ah, we have a working mic system. Excellent. Um, I want to welcome you. I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And I want to thank you all for coming to this Capitol Hill briefing, which is entitled, Everything You Wanted to Know About Border Adjustability But Were Afraid to Ask. Have no fear. But before we begin, if you are watching via the live stream and would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet appropriate questions to us at hashtag Cato Events. Uh, as everyone knows, there's been an awful lot of discussion on border adjustability and tariffs in recent weeks. And despite exhaustive work on this issue from Cato folks, our co-panelists, and many others, there remains a lot of controversy. Will the generated revenues be used to lower tax rates or to build a wall? Just who will pay the tax? What does this, such a policy mean to the World Trade Organization? What does it mean for the dollar? Will it usher in a value-added tax? And many more. But today we'll try to answer all these questions, untangle some of the confusion, and clarify some of the implications such a policy might bring. Uh, further, we'd like to provide, perhaps, some better ways of handling this aspect of tax reform, but that remains to be seen. Uh, but let's get to it. First up will be Daniel J. Mitchell, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, who specializes in fiscal policy, particularly tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. His work has been published in numerous outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Villanova Law Review, and many others. He has appeared on all the major TV networks and has given speeches in almost 40 states and more than 30 countries. Uh, Mitchell prolifically blogs at International Liberty, Restraining Government in America and Around the World, and he earned his PhD in economics from George Mason University. Uh, Stan Boyger is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies political economy and public finance. He is also the editor of AEI Economic Perspectives. Dr. Boyger's research has been published in leading academic and professional journals, including the Journal of Monetary Economics, the Oxford Bulletin of Economics and Statistics, and the Quarterly Journal of Economics. He is the editor with Michael Strain of Economic Freedom and Human Flourishing, Perspectives from Political Philosophy. He also writes frequently for general audiences on economics, politics, and popular culture, appearing in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, USA Today, and many others. Dr. Voiger earned his master's and PhD at Harvard. Uh, not up yet, but well, who is currently a victim of Washington Metro is Brian Garst, who will be here shortly, I'm told. Uh, but at any rate, he is the Director of Policy and Communications for the Center for Freedom and Prosperity, a nonprofit organization created to educate lawmakers on the benefits of market liberalization. The top projects of CFMP are the Coalition for Tax Competition, which is fighting to preserve jurisdictional tax competition fiscal sovereignty and financial privacy, and the Double Taxation Working Group, which is committed to abolishing the capital gains, dividends, and death tax. Hard to get more noble than that. Uh, Brian has an MA in political science from the University of West Florida. And last but certainly not least is our old friend and colleague, Veronique de Rugui, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a nationally syndicated columnist. Her primary research interests include the US economy, the federal budget, homeland security, taxation, tax competition, and financial privacy. Her popular weekly charts published by the Mercatus Center address economic issues ranging from lessons on creating sustainable economic growth to the implications of government tax and fiscal policies. Her charts, articles, and commentary have been featured in a wide range of media outlets, and in 2015, she was named in Politico Magazine's Guide to the Top 50 Thinkers, Doers, and Visionaries Transforming American Politics. Before moving to the US, she oversaw academic programs in France for the Institute for Humane Studies Europe. She received her PhD in economics from the Pantheon Sorbonne University. 
Um, each will speak for five to ten minutes or so, and then we'll endeavor to leave time for uh, questions at the end. And I will have a short announcement at the conclusion of the event. But for now, and with applause, let's please welcome Dan Mitchell. Thank you, Peter. We're all going to try to speak actually for five to seven minutes because we want to leave time for Q&A. Uh, but before I start, I want to say I'm just thankful that Veronique snuck in the country before we put all these different visa uh, restrictions, uh, keeping those dangerous people from France out with their socialist ideas. Uh, what I want to do as the first speaker is actually not be evangelical at all about the issue, even though I want to be. I'm just going to describe what it is and what the issues and constraints are. Uh, and I suppose the first thing to start with is an observation that border adjustability, this so-called destination-based cash flow tax, uh, it's part of an overall package, and 95% of the package are conventional good tax reform ideas uh, that have been around for a long time and are very desirable. The key principles of tax reform are to lower marginal tax rates because you don't want to discourage productive behavior, to reduce or eliminate double taxation because it's very foolish uh, to discourage people from providing the seed corn for economic growth, and then ideally getting rid of all loopholes and preferences and deductions and exemptions and credits because you, you don't want to have uh, industrial policy, social engineering, and the tax code. And most of what is in the House Better Way Plan is all designed to do that. As a matter of fact, if you get rid of double taxation, what you are technically doing in the boring public finance literature is you're moving to a consumption-based tax. Now, a consumption-based tax doesn't necessarily mean you know, something that's collected at the cash register. It's simply a way that economists have of describing a system that no longer double taxation, no, no longer double taxes, saving and investment. So we have a current system that has double taxation. The House Better Way Plan makes the decision that we should move toward a consumption-based tax system, which is a very good step. But it's important to understand there's more than one way to skin that cat. And specifically, you have a fundamental sort of philosophical choice. Do you want an origin-based consumption uh, system, or do you want a destination-based consumption system? And what the House uh, tax writers have done is they have chosen a destination-based system. Any of you who have worked on the Marketplace Fairness Act, this is very much the same issue. It's about whether or not uh, you have a, a system that undermines tax competition, and I know Veronique is going to talk about that, so I'll, I'll leave that to, to her. Uh, but what I want to do is try to explain in a very simple way what this means. In effect, the House plan takes the corporate income tax as we know it and makes two major changes. One is they replace depreciation with, with expensing. And that is, by every possible standard, at least among people who are more libertarian or conservative, that's a very good reform. It's in effect saying, we're not going to tax and penalize new investment, because why would you want to do that? I mean, even Marxists and socialists agree that saving an investment is the key to long-run growth. So shifting from depreciation to expensing, uh, in effect, turns the corporate income tax into something akin to a consumption-based uh, corporate tax or business tax. But then the other provision is the destination-based provision. And in effect, what it does, without getting too boring and wonky on you, is the tax base for business taxation in the United States would shift from income and production in the United States to consumption in the United States. Uh, and what that basically means is that you're achieving that goal of consumption taxation 
but by defining the tax base under those destination-based rules, you are going to have various implications that other speakers will talk about in terms of uh, World Trade Organization. Is this compliant with our commitments under the WTO? It has the uh, implications for tax competition, which the other speakers are going to talk about. Uh, so, so in some sense, the destination-based cash flow tax, the so-called border adjustable taxation in the House plan, part of it is very conventional and is widely supported in terms of, again, the moving from depreciation to expensing. That's widely supported. But the other part, the choosing of a destination model rather than an origin-based model, that's where a lot of the controversy comes in that the other speakers will talk about. I'll simply close with one other observation. Why did they choose the border-adjustable approach, the destination-based model? They chose it because it generates revenue. It generates revenue because a destination-based system, in effect, means you're exempting exports and you're taxing imports. And the reason it generates revenue is because, obviously, we import a lot more than we export. Now, some people think a trade deficit is bad. I've never thought that. It simply means that people voluntarily are buying things from overseas and foreigners voluntarily are investing in the U.S. economy rather than buying goods from the U.S. economy. So I don't even think a trade deficit is something bad or something to worry about. Uh, but nonetheless, the reason the destination-based feature was chosen was not, I think, because there's some underlying philosophical desire to undermine tax competition or to violate our WTO obligations. I think they picked it solely because it generates revenue. So my final observation on that revenue generation idea is this. The Congressional Budget Office just released its economic and budget outlook. If you look at the 10-year forecast they have for baseline tax revenue, you look at where government spending is right now. If you want to balance the budget within 10 years, all Congress has to do is limit annual spending so it grows 2.63% a year. That's given the existing revenue baseline. But what about if you do the House Better Way Plan, which is a tax cut, and what if you not only do the House Better Way Plan, but you strip out this revenue generator called border adjustability? You're talking probably about a tax cut then of $3 trillion over 10 years. So I went to those CBO numbers and I said, okay, if instead of limiting annual spending growth to 2.63% a year, what if we wanted to do the Better Way Plan minus border adjustability and still balance the budget after 10 years? Does that take savage and draconian budget cuts? I mean, I like that idea, so you know, it wouldn't bother me, but I know some people are a little bit squeamish on reducing the burden of government spending. So what actually would be required to balance the budget, strip out the border adjustability, and still do the 90% of good stuff that's in the Better Way Plan? You simply have to limit the annual growth of government spending to 1.96% a year. That doesn't strike me as an unreasonable ask. So I, I think there is a way of fixing the Better Way Plan uh, to take out this controversial provision, which is causing discord in the business community, causing people like us policy wonks to get all upset. Or if you really wanted to, if you didn't want to have additional spending discipline, perhaps you could simply phase in some of the good provisions of the Better Way Plan over 10 years rather than doing them uh, right away. But that, those are my introductory remarks on what the plan is and what some of the issues are. I will now turn it over to Stan. All right, well, Stan Voiger. Dan, thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. Can you all hear me reasonably well? All right. I'm going to focus on the, um, on the border adjustment uh, side of the, 
of the plan, and in particular on the transition from the current situation to uh, a situation in which we have the border adjustment in place. What is the border adjustment? Texas imports at, say, 20%, and it subsidizes exports at effectively at 20% as well. What does that sound like to people? It sounds like a burden on people who import, and um, it sounds like a, you know, a benefit for people who export. That is not how most economists uh, think about it. Economists see this as a one-time shift in relative price levels. Um, it's called a fiscal devaluation, traditionally in the literature. Keynes used, Keynes used to write about this. Under fixed exchange rates, uh, a fiscal devaluation is like any other devaluation. And it does indeed make exports cheaper and imports more expensive. Under floating exchange rates, which we effectively have, it does not have that kind of effect. Instead, what happens is uh, exchange rates will mostly adjust, and we will go back to a situation um, where trade flows remain the way they used to be. Now, I said, tr uh, I said that exchange rates will adjust. That is not a given. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, about this that I think, um, and I think that people are very confident that exchange rates will adjust immediately and fully um, are basing that on very simplified models of how the international macroeconomy uh, works. So let's walk through three, the three possible scenarios. One, the exchange, rates, the exchange rates adjust fully. Two, they never adjust fully. And three, they start adjusting in anticipation of uh, implementation of border adjustment. If the adjustment is complete, then uh, the dollar becomes 20% more valuable than other currencies. What does that mean? If you're a holder of, of foreign assets, you take a big hit, right? Because you're the, you're, you're the dollar value of your foreign currency assets has gone down significantly. That's particular, particularly problematic if you're, say, a pension fund that holds uh, foreign equities. All of your liabilities are in the US, but you take a big hit on your, on your assets abroad, right? And that hit is a 20% is a hit. It's, the numbers we're talking about are big. It's about 2.5 trillion for all U.S. holders of foreign assets, uh, and you know, heavily concentrated among certain uh, types of firms. There are um, other smaller um, impacts from that big appreciation in the dollar. For example, if you're if you sell a lot to foreigners, but the foreigners are in the U.S. when you sell to them, so you're a hotel or a real estate business, um, then you're affected by this because effectively your prices have gone up, uh, but you're not getting the export subsidy. Um, and so there are big ramifications that I don't think people have considered. Well, uh, also outside the country. If you're an emerging economy that borrows in dollars, then suddenly your, your liabilities go up, but your, uh, your income and your assets uh, do not in the same manner. So that's the best case scenario in a way, right? That's full adjustment of the currency, um, full adjustment of exchange rates, and uh, trade flows are not affected. If the adjustment is incomplete, which is perfectly possible in the real world, maybe because some industries will be exempted, maybe because uh, we're not going to make uh, export subsidies fully refundable, then we will see that the exchange rate will only partially adjust. That's the scenario that a lot of importers, I think, are rightly worried about. Because in that case, their, their costs of doing business go up uh, while they cannot suddenly start ha charging higher prices domestically. Um, the opposite scenario is one that I think has not gotten as much attention. It's one where exchange rates will appreciate in expectation of border adjustment. Um, and in that case, it's remarkably, it's exporters that are harmed, right? Because if the exchange rate appreciates, but they're not getting their export subsidies yet, then that makes them less competitive in the international marketplace. So those are three different scenarios that you uh, have to think through as we, as we consider whether to shift to this new system. 
Um, and all three have different sets of winners and losers. Um, and it's really going to be you know, up to each of those sets of winners and losers to think what scenario is more uh, likely, which winners and losers do I care about most, uh, and things like that. And I think I'm going to leave it at that, and we can talk more in Q&A. Um, uh, Ryan. Ryan. Uh, thank you, and good afternoon. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, political side of, of this issue, since we're obviously going to hear from a lot of economists about some of the more economic questions. And obviously, those are important, but I, th I think we also have to consider some of the politics. And before I do that, I, um, I think it would be valuable to look at a, a different framework for considering exactly what the blueprint will do. Uh, what we generally hear is that it will lower rates, amongst other things, like full expensing, and then convert the corporate income tax into this destination-based cash, cash flow tax. That's, that's true, but we could also think about it just as easily as abolishing the corporate income tax and then replacing it with the destination-based ca cash flow tax. And I think looking at it this way shows a little bit how some of the optics of this could go very badly. Um, instead of just having a tax cut, which is something that would go over rather well politically right now, um, you have what will look like to the public as both a tax cut and a tax hike. Basically, new taxes over here are going to use to pay for tax cuts over here. And the particularly concerning part of that is that over here are consumers and over here are big corporations. And I don't think it's difficult to see how that might not play too well. Furthermore, as Stan mentioned, there's a good bit of evidence that the, uh, the textbook model for a full dollar appreciation might not prove as simple as some claim which will make the pain on consumers not just a function of them seeing higher prices, but it actually being something that, that hurts them in reality. Of course, regardless of which way that question falls, it's not a free lunch either way. Um, if the dollar does rise, then the, the, the cost of the tax is borne by U.S. holders of foreign assets. That's not as politically problematic, but um, as, Stan, as Stan mentioned, there, there are some, certainly some costs there as well. And that, that brings me to my, my next point which is that this approach is creating more losers than there needs to be. This is basically a function, of, this is leading to there being a division amongst usual allies. We see some of that on this panel today, obviously. Folks who normally get along or are on the same page are very much not on this issue. Um, but that's also a, a problem in the business community where you would expect, if you're doing corporate tax reform, that all businesses would be on board. Right now, that is very much not the case. We've pitted exporters against importers by taking this approach. And, and all of this is before Democrats are even really involved in the discussion. And why are we doing all this? Well, essentially, Republicans have decided to essentially surrender to, a, to the various accounting gimmicks that have long favored the other side. It's not just a question of whether or not you're grading on a static versus dynamic basis. Obviously, this is not close to revenue neutral on a static basis, but it's, you're essentially ignoring everything that happens after 10 years. We know the tax cuts are going to be pro-growth. That growth is still going to matter 10 years, and there's going to be a compounding effect. So if you're only looking into shorter window, you're basically <laughs> overpaying for the tax cuts. We know also that corporate income taxes are probably the most destructive form of taxation there is on an economic basis. The more principled position to start from would be just to abolish them. If you, if you insist on paying for something that is both good and smart, 
you should be doing so by reducing spending, as Dan mentioned. And, and in fact, you don't really have to reduce spending, you just have to slow the rate of growth. So by starting from the position that you have to make corporate tax reform revenue neutral or close to it, just within the realm of corporate taxes, you're essentially limiting yourself to more ambitious reforms. So at the very least, your starting point should be more principled. And if you have to give up something along the way, then you do so. Uh, one last thing I want to mention before um, passing this on, and, and Dan talked a little bit about this, is this issue of international tax competition. This, this change will have a big impact on tax competition. Both sides agree on that. Um, one of the reasons we value tax competition is the pressure it puts on governments to very similar in the way that markets put pressure on businesses to deliver a good product at low cost. Um, if, policy, if politicians want to overtax and overspend, then there's an ultimate recourse available to taxpayers. They can get up and leave. This, in effect, helps keep politicians in line, somewhat. And since we're talking about corporate taxes, the decisions made overseas are, don't just affect the people overseas, they also affect us because we're all part of the global economy. So we want them to be somewhat constrained by tax competition. Supporters of the destination-based cash flow tax argue that the moving from the current corporate income system to the new, the new tax is going to win tax competition. Essentially that other nations will be forced to follow our lead and that we're then taking the advanced step. But that's not winning in this case, that's undermining tax competition. Winning would be abolishing the corporate income tax altogether. That would be a huge win. In fact, we'd be fairly quickly tired of all the winning. <laughs> but uh, eliminating the ability of taxpayers to uh, pick up and move when things get really bad is, is not, in fact, winning. It's surrendering a key battle against bigger government. This is, in fact, what the tax on spenders want. They're quite open about this fact. Um, some of the economists on the left-leaning side supporting this move, such as Alan Auerbach, have said so much that, in f that, the, uh, that the loss of pressure to keep rates down is one of the key features of the system if other nations adopt it. And, um, but I think, in fact, that is not a feature. It's a fault and a rather large one. So with that, I will help move this along so that we can get to questions. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I guess my role is kind of like to round this up to actually offer one of the uh, maybe darker, darker uh, uh, perspective of what happens if we go to the system. By the way, I mean, I think we all agree that most of the blueprint, I mean, a vast majority of the blueprint is, is excellent and, and, and would agree uh, I mean, would be all clapping and cheering if that's all it was. And this is why, uh, you know, this is why we, we just don't quite get what's, what's happening um, right now and why we're having, you know, we're, the Republicans are effectively kind of, um, instead of getting a system that all of us could cheer about, um, have put in place the system where there's just a real divide. Um, I would like to note also the irony, as Dan has uh, noted, in a town that doesn't pay for anything, 
the insistence of Republicans that they must pay for a pro-growth tax reform is strange, especially paying for it with tax increase and a new source of revenue. I mean, defies logic. I know that what we used to believe conservatives believed in has been quite challenged, or what Republicans used to believe in has been quite challenged recently. But I would, I would still note that it is quite strange, right? Especially because if you don't constrain yourself to this 10-year budget window, we know that a lot of the features that we like, like full expensing, I mean, would actually end up paying for themselves. So anyway, I just want to ask why is it why it is you know that conservatives and 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 Republicans should be behind a system that insists on paying for a pro-growth tax reform with a tax increase, and especially with a new source of revenue. But now I want to actually talk about what's ha what happens once the system is in place. I mean, like for good or bad, right? Um, even if you know, uh, interest um, currency you've adjusted, which I think is kind of an article of faith to say that they would adjust fully. Um, they will adjust, it will take time, it would be choppy. There are tremendous consequences that goes with this. Imagine that um, this is a system in place where effectively has undermined tax competition because it's a destination based size. So basically when you're a consumer or company and you're under this system, where you are, you're, I mean, you're stuck. There's no escape valve. I mean, I trust that companies and, uh, will always be able to find some sort of escape valve, but a big one has actually been closed. So now you have this system. Right, now you have a Republican Congress and a Republican president. The idea that this will never change is crazy. And yet it seems that the Republicans are actually committed to living in this denial that this will never change, and not ask the question, what's happening next? What, what is happening when Senator Warren, uh, President Warren is in power, and Congress is in the hand of Democrats? You know, I mean, it's not a crazy thought, right? I mean, a few years ago, I mean, there were a lot of Democrats who were happy to say that Republicans would never win the White House ever again. I mean, a lot of the things we strongly believe in in this city happen to be just completely not true. Fake news, right? So what happens? Well, first, one of the issues we haven't talked about, I won't expand on it because I'm not a trade expert, is that there is possibly a WTO challenge, right? Because that system is not a value-added tax, right? It's not a value-added tax because it, it deducts wages. And that could really be challenged in front of the WTO. What does this mean? Well, Chairman Brady, who is a proponent of this feature of the tax reform, says eh, it will take years to resolve, so we shouldn't actually worry about it. But first of all, let me say that these years of resolving that problem creates a lot of uncertainty which may add to actually the problems of currency adjustments, right? The other thing is like during those years of resolution, 
the Democrats may get in power. What's the best way to, and the simplest way to actually solve this problem? Well, you just stop deducting wages. You turn the destination-based tax into a VAT, right? I mean, I, I, I mean, I know that a lot of Democrats would salivate at the idea of having a value-added tax, right? And we would end up with a value-added tax alongside our individual income tax, our individual um, income tax, and that would open the door even further for more European-style government. That's one thing I would really not like to see coming from France. I'm just saying, especially since it looks like I'll probably never be able to go back to France because they'll never get their act together. Now, the other thing is like we don't even have to kind of have nightmares about um, about the Democrats getting us a VAT thanks to Republicans to actually be worried about the system being in place, right? Even in the best case scenario. First, this is a perfect system. The fact that tax competition has been undermined to such a degree, this is a perfect system to start, you know, taxing more industries that you like or don't like, right? The favoritism that can, that can go on in such a system is, is, is worrisome in my opinion. But the other thing that can happen without going to a VAT is actually they could just simply raise the rate. So here you have a system with no escape, escape valve, right? And now a much higher rate. Why? What would stop them? Nothing. And you would want to know why? Actually, people are already calling for a higher rate. Because one of the ways this tax is, is sold, right, is that it doesn't create any distortion. So um, economist William Gale at Brookings has put out a paper last week, an article last week, saying that actually the lack of distortions um, means that you can actually raise the rate. Why, and what you should be doing is like actually make it equal to the top marginal uh, income tax rate, which is much significantly higher, and I assume under the Democrats it would be even higher than it is now, right? But then later in the article he said, oh, and by the way, um, you have the revenue estimates don't work. If, we wanna, if you really wanna make it revenue neutral, the rate should be roughly 30%. So here you have it. We don't even have the system in place, right? And people are already calling for higher rates. So I think Republicans considering right now, member of Congress considering this system, you ought to obviously listen to what people are saying and the warnings about the consequences of the tax. But one of those we're not talking enough about is like, what happens when this system is in place? How does it evolve in the long run? And the picture I see is just not one I'd like to experience. Thank you.